this is a very special episode of Retelling the Bible. I will not be telling a Bible story this time, but have a wonderful treat for you instead. Last week I was interviewed by one of my podcasting heroes, Gary Stevens of History in the Bible podcast. When I first started to listen to podcasts, I wanted to listen to something that would take me deeper into understanding and appreciating the Bible. And Gary's podcast really fit the bill. His straightforward, not faith-based telling of the historical connections to the stories of the Bible gave me a new appreciation of a book that I had long loved, and I would credit it as one of the inspirations of my own approach to podcasting the Bible. I would definitely recommend History in the Bible as an addition to your regular podcast feeds. Very soon, Gary will begin his third and final season of the podcast, in which he will look at the very beginnings of Christianity up until about the year 200. I'll definitely be listening, and I think you'll like it too. So here, without further ado, is Gary's introduction and our discussion. This is Retelling the Bible, talking to... History in the Bible podcast. Episode 5.6 The Interview. I have a special, oh-so-special bonus episode for you today. Let me introduce the Reverend W. Scott McCandless, host and producer of a a ripping podcast called Retelling the Bible. Scott is a brilliant storyteller who presents vignettes from the Bible. Every episode is a short radio play, skillfully written and passionately delivered. Here's a clip from a recent episode where he dramatizes Paul's escape from Damascus, tersely recounted in Acts chapter 9 and Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Paul had learned some very disturbing news. Not only had the ethnarch found him, he had been able to hire a bunch of goons in the city from among the expatriate Arab population The word was that they were laying in wait for him at every exit from the city. The ethnarch had decided that in order to save his own honor, Paul would have to be beaten to death. And so... Paul couldn't believe it, but here he was, about to step into a large woven basket and have four burly men lower him by ropes out of a hole in the wall of the city of Damascus. Once again, Paul was going on the run. Now, that's much more fun to hear than the Bible's accounts are to read. Believe me. 
All of Scott's shows are rollicking fun. I cannot recommend his show highly enough. Scott is the minister to the congregation of St Andrew's Hespler Presbyterian Church in Cambridge, Ontario, where he now lives with his wife, his two daughters, and some very energetic cats. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just amazed to be talking to you uh, where you are tomorrow to my today. You're talking to someone in the future? In the future, which reminds me that yeah, the world is not going to end before tomorrow because you're already there. Uh, and I assure you, nothing's happened. Anyway, tell us about your podcast. Um, my podcast is uh, is called Retelling the Bible, and basically all I like to do is I, I find a Bible story that I really like or that I've enjoyed. I especially like to find ones that maybe I've missed or that people aren't too aware of, and I just like to tell the story and fill in the details. And sometimes, you know, for example, tell the story from the point of view of the character that we don't usually think of or who doesn't usually get a voice. Uh, so so basically enjoying the narratives of the Bible and just I just like to have fun with them and retell them. Okay, now, so you've got about 70 episodes in five seasons and you put them out maybe every fortnight or so? Yep. You've been running since 2017? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the, the seasons. Why? How are they differentiating the seasons, or are they, are they just bigger gaps between the end of one season and the beginning of another? Uh, well, at first, I mean, I just started out. Uh, I started out with a bunch of Christmas episodes. So, oh, like right. my first season, um, which which is all tied up to why I will maybe get into that a little bit later. So, I I sort of retold parts of the Christmas story for season one, and then uh, I enjoyed doing that, and they were kind of short and then I came back and I rethought the whole concept and for season two I believe I started it with the calendar year did season two was a full calendar year season three was another calendar year so I think that's how I did it oh I see okay so a season fits into it all right okay that makes perfect sense now actually a bit about your background and, and what you do today you're a minister I'm a minister I'm a minister of the Presbyterian Church in Canada I have been for, I'd lose track of times. So when did I, I graduated in 92. So what that's coming up on, is that 30 years coming up? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's hard to believe. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I've worked at a number of different churches. I'm presently in, in Cambridge, Ontario. Yeah, my, my day job is, includes interpreting the Bible for the church and things like pastoral care and administration and all the, that goes with that job, which, of course, has been very, very different for the last year. Now, now can you tell us something about the Presbyterian Church? I'm for me, I mean, I was brought up as an Anglican. My brother's family decided to go Baptist, and half my family are Italian Catholics. I know virtually nothing about Presbyterianism. Well, pre Presbyterianism traces its roots. It's part of the Reformed movement of the the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it started out in Switzerland with a guy named Zwingli, and then a generation later, John Calvin, in particular, that we would trace the church to. John Calvin started a church in Geneva, in Switzerland, 
Uh, it spread from there to Scotland and uh, from Scotland to Canada and, of course, to many other parts of the world. I mean, the main important difference in the Presbyterian is how we run our government. Uh, so we don't have like bishops. We don't have archbishops. We have uh, bodies that come together. So all of the ministers and, and representative lay people from a region come together and they make those sort of policy decisions and government church decisions. So, so it's, it's the system of government that gives us the name because we're, we're ruled by presbyteries, those consultative bodies. But. So, th so this sounds like a return to the, the very primitive church. I'm sure that's what John Calvin thought. That's exactly how things worked in the early church. I look forward to your third season and, and how you will explain that that's how the early church worked. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of episodes on that one. Okay, there's a governing body. Is there an independent organization? And I'm thinking in the sense of Catholic priests, Anglican vicars, they get put, in, they get put into their parishes and they are supported by the, the overarching organization. Does it work like that in Presbyterianism? A little bit different. So in the local church, the authority would be the session. So the, a group of elders, elected elders, are, are the authority in the church. The church calls a minister to come and serve them. But the minister is actually a member of the body above that, which is the presbytery. Uh, so the presbytery is made up in a certain region of all of the ministers and, and one elder from, from each congregation. And sort of they oversee the church and try to support them and help them and often do and, and work through all of the issues that, of course, arise in the life of the church. So. OK, now, why did you get into the podcasting business? Well, it all started. Um, what, what were you saying? 2017 when I started just before that, I had written a book. Oh, yeah. What was the book? The book is called uh, Caesar's Census, God's Jubilee. But basically, it was okay. because I had been, you know, dealing with the Christmas story for years. Uh, and particularly, I mean, I love the Christmas story, of course, and interpreting the Christmas story for the church. But I was kind of convinced that we were reading the Christmas story a little bit wrong and that we were missing the author's intention of what he was trying to say. And part of it was because this whole census in chapter two of the, the, the Gospel of Luke, the census under Quirinius and everybody returning. And you look at that and it says, you know, from a historical point of view, it doesn't make any sense. Romans, yes, they did censuses, but they didn't do universal censuses. They certainly didn't require people to return to their ancestral homes to be counted because that's a really stupid way to do a census. And so, you know, there's a lot about that that didn't make sense. As I studied it and kept reading it over the years, I thought I decided we were probably misunderstanding what Luke was saying. You have to read the whole book, obviously, but basically it worked. My point of view was this. Yes, Romans took censuses. There was probably something like a standing order that everybody in the, you know, every region of the empire needed to have good census records. I think that might be what Luke is referring to when he says, you know, there was a decree, decree from Caesar Augustus that a census, the nation should be counted. Yeah, presumably for tax purposes. Presumably, yes, the Roman policy. But what happens is we know in 6 CE, the Romans took over Judea. Up until then, it had been ruled by one of Herod's sons. They took over, and it was direct rule, and they held a census in 6 CE, uh, right? When Quirinius was governor, that pretty clearly seems to be what Luke is talking about. But the whole thing, as I said, the whole thing about people returning home 
to be counted, to return to their ancestral homes to be counted, doesn't make sense. I think that Luke wanted his readers, if they saw something, and it wouldn't have made sense to them either. They knew how censuses work. He wanted them, if they saw something that didn't make sense in the gospel, he wanted them to go looking in the Old Testament for to make sense of it. That's, that's how the gospels work. Everything's a reference to the Old Testament. Well, what in the Old Testament requires people to go back to their ancestral homes? Only one law in the Old Testament requires people to return to their ancestral homes, and that is the law of Jubilee. I think that Luke meant it to be a Jubilee story. If you understand that, you read the rest of the gospel, you realize that gospel, the, the Jubilee is a major theme in Luke's gospel. I think he introduces that theme in chapter 2. And what he's saying is, yes, Caesar called a census hmm. because Judea became part of, part of the empire. But some people in Galilee, like Joseph and Mary, decided that God wanted them to do a jubilee because they needed to claim their land that was in their family. Now, I'm not saying that that's what actually historically happened. I'm saying that Luke introduces that as a theme in his gospel, and he wants us to read all kinds of theological meaning into it. So that's sort of, yeah, <laughs> that was the basis of the book. Okay. Now, can you, tell us what, can you tell us what a jubilee actually is? A jubilee is in the book of Leviticus. Every, what is it, 49 years, 50 years, a number of things are to happen. A trumpet is to be sounded throughout the land. Everyone is to re return to their ancestral homes. All debts are to be forgiven. All slaves are be, to be released. And all land is to be returned to anyone who lost their land because land was supposed to be maintained in the family forever. So basically, if people wanted to do a jubilee, it, it was a protest act against Roman policies that were stripping people of their land, throwing them into debt, throwing them into slavery. That is a theme in Luke's gospel. And it makes a lot of sense of a lot of the other stuff that is going on in the nativity story, <laughs> like the, the no room in the inn and the, the manger and all of that stuff. Now, do we have any idea how often these jubilees were actually held? Because obviously, when you're coming towards the end of the Jubilee period, you're not going to be buying slaves or taking some on land or anything like that. I would have thought that they would be incredibly unpopular, and I'm wondering if they were more symbolic. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I have a chapter dedicated to that question in my book. Uh, oh, really? But it's, uh, yes, because a lot of people say, well, that's ridiculous. And of course, the idea of forgiving everybody's debts uh, and, you know, undoing land sales is totally unthinkable in our society right? Because our whole society is based on capital and debt. But their society was a different society. And it was a completely agricultural society. And the whole idea was that everybody should have land and that debt was basically only, it wasn't, you didn't borrow money to start a business, you borrowed money because you were going to die. There is some evidence of jubilees being held uh, that I go into in the book. There is one when they're under siege from, by the Babylonians, I think, in the Book of Kings, and they release their, sleeve, their slaves as a part of a jubilee because they want the slaves to fight against. That's what I was thinking. Very convenient. Yes. And then, of course, once the enemy goes away, they take their slaves back, and Jeremiah, it's in Jeremiah. Jeremiah reams them out for not following through on their pledge. What they were doing was a jubilee. 
And so there, there are reasons to do it. One of the reasons why you would hold a jubilee is to make sure that, that the people who will fight your battles, that they will fight, that people have the land base to form an army to protect your country. They did happen in the ancient world. The, the Rosetta, Stone, Rosetta Stone in Egypt is actually a proclamation of a debt relief, of, of a cancelling of all debts. So we know that they happened in Egypt. <laughs> I was thinking that, I was thinking, I'm sure that I've heard of instances of debt cancellation in other societies before. Very bold thing to cancel debts. You're going to really irritate the aristocratic class. But it's very popular among the poor, you realize. It's, it's always been, you know, and yes. So, so among the dis disenfranchised class, yes, debt relief, freeing the slaves, giving people their land back was always very popular, of course. It's, it's the elites who hate that kind of thing, yes. For, for good reason, of course. And it can cause, obviously, some havoc in the economy. But anyways, that I mean, that's the basic thesis of my book. But what I did when I wrote the book was I said, yeah, but I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm messing with this story that we have of Christmas. Because we all know the story of the manger. And we, you know, we do silly things like putting the, the wise men from Matthew's gospel together with the shepherds from from Luke's gospel and we put the star in the sky when it's not supposed to you know when it's in the other gospel we this story is fixed in our minds I thought well there's no way I'm going to get through to people just by saying oh there's another way to look at it I decided I needed to retell the story in order to get my points across so in between my argument and my book I wrote little vignettes where I said I told the story I told the story of how Mary and Joseph met and how they became engaged in that society, which, of course, is very different from today, why they decided to make that journey, what happened when they got to the house. So I retold the story in between. And as I did that, I really started to love the storytelling aspect more than making my big argument. Oh, okay. So once I published the book, I wanted to get the word out. I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a podcast. And I started by telling those Christmas stories from the book, just as a way to sort of get people interested in my what my rethinking of the Christmas story. So I posted those as my first podcast episode. And after that, I just sort of decided, you know, I really enjoy doing this. I love doing it. And so, you know, in the next season, I started just picking out the stories I wanted to tell. So it's all been a hideous accident. Kind of. Isn't, kind isn't that of. usually what how, how podcasting happens? I think it is, actually. Yes. So my show just started off as a fill-in, and it turned into a massive <laughs> exped, expedition. Now, you jump around a lot in the show. Um, is that just because you're, you're pulling out, you think, oh, that's an interesting little story, let's do that one next Yes, it's it's kind of that. I it is. Uh, I'm interested and fascinated in this story. I'm. I mean, obviously, in my work, I'm always interacting with the Bible, and so I come across an interesting story, and I say, oh, that's that's a great one to retell. So it's yeah, it's partly that. It's it's partly sometimes being able to respond to what's happening in the world. That was, you know, when I did that Quirinius Anonymous at the beginning of the year. That was prompted when, for me, when I was reading in some, you know, up on Facebook or something and Christians asking questions like, oh, if I get the, the vaccine for COVID-19, is that the mark of the beast? There, there are some Christians who are saying that we shouldn't get vaccinated because of that. 
And so I wanted to to say, you know, <laughs> you're not understanding what the book of Revelation is about. And, and, and actually, as I thought about it, I think what the book of Revelations is saying about like the number of the beast and the beast might actually be a warning against falling into these kinds of conspiracy theories. And so I decided to tell the story of a fictional Quirinius Anonymous from, from the late first century. And just to give that context of what Revelations really about to try and correct some of the very sad information that's out there. <laughs> yeah. Your show is very well produced. Like you do music underneath, you have all sorts of acoustic things, which I just don't do. Well, thank you. I'm glad you think it's well produced, yes. Oh, yeah, I think it's excellently produced. <laughs> Much better than mine, because I'm not competent to do them. Now, you said your daughter's an audio engineer, is that right? Yes, I mean, she, she just finished in, in the spring. Uh, so she just finished. She just finished her course in music industry, the music industry arts. That's what she studied. And oh, okay. uh, so just she just graduated when the music industry shut down. So it was it's been kind of crazy. But yeah, so she's taught me a few things and I'm actually borrowing her her excellent microphone. So, yeah, she's given me a few pointers. She has in a number of episodes, actually, when I needed really needed a woman's voice to tell the story. She has graciously lent her voice to me, which has been wonderful because she is actually a really good actor as well. She also is writing music now. Mercy Rock is what she writes under. And uh, so she's let me use some of her music underneath my words as well. But That's a level of expertise beyond my humble talents. Well, actually, how long does it take to, to produce an entire episode? So that goes from writing the script, recording it, and then doing the post-production work. You know, last Wednesday, I posted my last episode. So once I had finished record, I I, re I recorded it on Monday. Yeah. I did start writing the next episode later on Monday and Tuesday, just in my spare time. I have a little show notes page that I wrote in the, over the next couple of days. So I put that up on, on Wednesday. So I am in the meantime, I'm continuing to write the other episode. So I write it over about a period of 10 days, read it over. I tend to write, and this is true of all my writing, and obviously I do a lot of writing. I write in between things. So I got 20 minutes, I I write. <laughs> I would be very sad if I didn't have something to write. You make it all sound so easy. I enjoy it. There are times when it's a little bit frustrating or, or difficult. Sometimes the hard thing is to find the right piece of music to sort of set the mood. And little things like that can be a little frustrating. But some, And sometimes when you're writing, you run into a block. Well, from the episodes I listened to, I mean, I listened to, I think, your most recent one was Jeroboam. Yeah, I just listened to that uh, last night. And actually, I thought, yeah, that was quite interesting. I mean, Jeroboam, he doesn't appear much in the Masoretic text of the Bible, although in the Septuagint, he gets a much bigger part, which is interesting. The first big divergence between the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Septuagint actually comes in, yeah, First, first Kings. First Kings, Second Kings, whatever. With Jer it's much more um, pro Jeroboam. Yes. Well, there. I mean, that was what I was surprising as I was writing the episode. There's, there's a, there's a really good positive story of Jeroboam in there. That yeah, maybe it got a little bit skewed away from that, but you can see, you know, Solomon sees him as this, this very able young man who's he's very impressed by him and. 
And who who can blame him for starting a starting a rebellion when he got sent to enslave his own people? I'm surprised that that story stayed in the Bible. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, Solomon's son is depicted as even worse, isn't he? I mean, my father, what, lashed you with whips and I will lash you with scorpions. He, he's, he's depicted as a complete idiot. I'm writing that episode now, by the way. I'm doing Rehoboam now, <laughs> so yes. And I'm just wondering in the history, was the story invented to explain the split? Because, I mean, previously, oh, Solomon, magnificent, all wise, all this, all that. And then the minute Solomon dies, the whole thing collapses. So I'm wondering if the story is written to explain that, or was it true, or both? That is, you know, how true was it is definitely a good question and hard to answer because, you know, the Bible says, yes, David and Solomon had this huge kingdom. They had this rule over this large area, and then it fell apart. But it could well be that the North never really felt that they were part of the kingdom. They may have been exploited. They may have had, you know, some dealings with these kings in the South that but it's quite possible that David and Solomon's kingdom was never quite as big as, you know, later propaganda made it out to be. Because you need to understand these stories, I mean, they are kind of political propaganda because they are the stories that were maintained and kept in the house of David. And they were holding on to this story that they had God's right to rule over this whole area. Uh, and so they needed to tell this story. But I'm a little bit suspicious whether, you know, how how realistic it really was, yeah. Well, I mean, there's zero external evidence, isn't there, from either from Babylon or Assyria or Egypt? I mean, we know that there, there was a house of David. We know that there was, that there was a, uh, so presumably there was a David who ruled in Jerusalem. But yeah, there's no evidence of how big the kingdom was or how, there's actually a lot more historical and archaeological evidence of of the kingdom of Israel in the north. And and the house of Omri in particular seems to have been very well known and quite prosperous, right? Yeah, in spite of the Bible's best efforts to downplay the house of Omri. Yeah, Israel seems to have been the, uh, the wealthy, prosperous kingdom, and poor little Judah was a rural, rural backwater. Yes, for most of its history at least, yeah. Yeah, yeah, at least until the Babylonian conquest, when um, it seems to have been flooded with refugees. Although I just read, there's an academic paper just came out in the past few weeks that maybe there wasn't a flood of refugees from Israel. Sorry, after the Assyrian conquest. Ah, they keep changing their minds. These scholars, yes, it's pretty hard to keep up. I try, but I, I can't, yeah, I can't always get straight, but yeah. In 20 years, my whole show will be completely wrong and redundant. But I won't be here then, so. Yes. Well, I could say I, I, I told some good stories, and, and I well admit that this is not, you know, what I, the way I tell the story is not necessarily how it must have happened. I mostly am telling it to sort of give people a different, different angle, different point of view, different way of looking at it. You're well off the hook. Yeah, that's one of the pluses of, of being a storyteller rather than <laughs> a mere historian. Now, I mean, I, I certainly nod to the history and try to try to be as historical as I can. It's it's story first. Now, do you have any sort of background in drama or anything? Because your shows are quite dramatic. 
I can't say that I really do other than, you know, being up in front of, you know, I've, I've what, a 30-year career of, of speaking before people. I've done over the years, I've done a lot of videos with like the kids in the church where I would have them act out Bible stories and we did some really fun videos. They probably taught me as much about drama doing that as I taught them, but um, I love the stories. I just love the stories. And so to to put the expression into them, it's natural, I think. But your, but your day job has prepared you with 30 years of public speaking. Yeah. And I suppose... In specifically in that capacity, I mean, you're not delivering lectures on motivation for bathroom salesmen. You also have to uh, entertain the congregation. At least I hope so, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, have there been any sort of episodes and stories that you started and then midway through it, you've gone, oh, wait a minute, my original intention or what I thought was actually happening is totally wrong or you know you had a bit of a relation and thought oh wait a minute i'll have to rethink this whole episode i've abandoned some early you know where i thought oh i'm going to do this one and i thought about it a bit never really got into it i don't think i've ever you know there was never one that really didn't work there are certainly some that went into rather you know as you tell the stories as you sort of get to know the character they kind of take you in unexpected directions some way sometimes so so that that certainly happens but i don't think i've ever had to really quite abandon well actually just on that that unexpected direction thing okay so who's taken you in an unexpected direction can you remember any well i'll i'll tell you the one that probably surprised me most it's a story that i call um uh, gomer's me too moment uh, which came out back sort of at the height of the whole me too movement that story probably moved me more than than any others. It's based on the story on the book of Hosea, right? And uh, so Hosea tells the story of this prophet Hosea, who apparently God tells him to go and find an adulterous wife, and so he marries this this woman Gomer. Now, when I went to seminary and when I've you know been in the church over the years. The message about the book of Hosea is, oh, this is this wonderful story of God's steadfast love. Just like like Hosea takes back this woman at the end, and you know, it's this wonderful image of God's love with this unfaithful woman. Now, the problem is, so I went in and I started to tell the story from Gomer's, the wife's point of view. This woman who is accused of adult, you know, what she did, and it was probably something that was fairly normal, I suspect, in the culture at the time. That So she is rejected. She is, um, depending on how you read it in the book, it's like she, things that Hosea says about her, he possibly takes her out in public and strips her naked in front of everyone. We're talking very real and very devastating abuse. He takes her children away from her, throws her out. She ends up in slavery. It's a terrible, horrible story of abuse that we, for thousands of years, the church has been saying, oh, this is a story of God's steadfast love. I'm sorry, not from Gomer's point of view. So so that story, telling that story from her point of view, I mean, I told that story because I had to come to grips with this book of Hosea that all of a sudden wasn't working for me. And I remember 
I told the story and I recorded it. And then I, a few weeks later, I played it back for some friends. And so I listened to it again and it, it made me weep. It's just this t- t- terrible, terrible story. And it's there in the Bible. And I'm just needing to, to show to people that there's another side to these kinds of stories. <laughs> there's a lot of terrible stories in the Bible which don't get any airplay, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I have a real thing with the book of Joshua. Yes. Yeah. Uh, second half is fine. That's just real estate description. Land, land, land cutting up, it's, which is actually very important. But yes, it's kind of boring. First half, I loathe and despise. It's a horrible story. And it's told with such glee. Now, I did an, an episode, I did an episode, I'm oh, sorry, to, <laughs> Pretty Canaanite Woman about uh, Rahab in the city of Jericho. And from her point of view, right? And, and there's some really interesting things going on in that story. Uh, once, you know, that's why I love to tell, tell these as narratives, because it forces you to, to look at the story from a whole different point of view and ask all kinds of questions that you wouldn't just, you know, trying to interpret it and find some, some lesson to take to the church. I love to get into the, the nitty-gritty of the story. Does your congregation know you do this? I mean, it is it is my project, so I um, you know I'm not I don't I don't promote it in the church or you know it's uh, but I certainly don't hide that that I do these things. Yeah, I don't do it for them. I do it for people. I do it for non-church people. That was always my intention. It's. But have you ever had any weird comments or unexpected comments on an episode? Like they completely misinterpreted, or you thinking, how did you get that out of it? I think, uh, I mean, there are certainly, I've, I've had the odd person say, well, I don't agree with, you know, this or that, or when I did the episode of David raping Bathsheba. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that one, you know, you get, you get people who say, no, 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 that wasn't rape. And I'm, I'm sorry it was. They'll disagree with you, but I haven't really got into any fights or things like that. I've got a few interesting suggestions uh, from people of stories to do, which have been great. Have you got a couple of stories which you're really looking forward to doing? I haven't really, I haven't really thought in terms of, of where I go from here. So, yeah, I, if I see a story I want to do, I'll normally just, oh, that's the next one. <laughs> you know, I'll do it next. So I, I, I don't plan. I'm not like you. I don't have to plan ahead because I can jump around. Oh, lucky duck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to plan out my seasons carefully and all of that. I can go wherever I want to go. But I don't think I'll ever run out of stories. Where can you get the book from? Oh, it's Amazon. It's on Amazon all over the world. Um, you know, just Caesar Census God's Jubilee. That's that's the only place it's available in paperback. But most other ebook places, you can also get it. I have written another book, which you know, it's not at the not finished, but certainly a first draft is finished. Uh, which I've called, uh, which I'm calling the Seven Demons of Miriam of Magdala, and telling the whole story of Jesus from her point of view, not based on on the traditions that people of all kinds of traditions built up around Mary, but but actually only of what it says about her in the Gospels. And so I've written a whole book about that, but I haven't quite figured out what to do with that. <laughs> it's it's all in the style of my podcast. I. Now, she's been woefully misinterpreted, hasn't she? Yes. Yeah, I mean, the whole, oh, she was a 
the prostitute, and it doesn't say that. And and the whole thing about her having seven demons is strangely all sort of nobody ever talks about. Of course, we're all we're very embarrassed about the whole demon stuff in the New Testament. But I found that really kind of fascinating because, of course, what they call demons, we would call things like it might be mental health issues. It might be just anger or rage or a woman speaking out of turn could be accused of having a demon. So I had had fun thinking of how this woman could have ended up being seen as having seven demons. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I'd like to do something with that someday, but we'll see. (laughs) We now use the word demon in a metaphorical sense, but they meant it in a literal sense as some sort of entity. Yes, a supernatural a supernatural being. Though, I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that's necessarily a case of us being completely wrong and them complete, them, or us being completely right and them being completely wrong. Because I deal, you know, I, I've tried to help lots of people as they deal with whether it's depression or sometimes mental illness or other things they're struggling with. There's definitely a spiritual dimension to those kinds of things. I mean, yes, people, they may need uh, medical help, they may need other assistance, but there's also, there's also a spiritual dimension that I think in our modern world we sort of ignore. Now, I certainly don't want to go around using words and terminology like evil demons because that obviously you know, stigmatizes people in ways that are completely unhelpful. I don't think we've necessarily got these kinds of issues sorted out. There's always a spiritual dimension to what people struggle with. Right, now the whole mental health thing, we've not handled that well at all for the past, what, 150 years? It's, it's like almost everything we do doesn't actually work. Yes, and, and, and makes things worse. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying, we're trying to, yes, to destigmatize it and, and talk about it and, and let people know that we can't, you know, that is, that is the main thing. And honestly, I think that's, you know, when Jesus is dealing with people with demons you know, in the Gospels, that's what he's doing. He's reaching out, he's touching them, he's treating them as human beings when everyone else around them isn't. Those are the measures that... You know, actually, that, that's, a, that's an interesting research topic because, 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 I read that ancient Israelite religion, so pre-Second Temple, seems to have been distinguished from its close cousins, the Canaanite religions, in that uniquely the ancient Israelite religion did not have demons. Hmm. So at some point, they came back. And I'd like to know if anyone has investigated how that happened or why it happened. Um, I mean, the whole Second Temple apocryphal literature is full of them, so it was coming back then. You would, you would wonder if it might not have had something to do with Persian influence that was pretty big at that period of time. Actually, that's a good point. And the whole dualism thing. I was just, uh, so you're, I mean, I've, I've loved your podcast all along. I think I've Thank listened you. from the beginning. I don't think I had to go back and catch up. You know, I've loved every phase. I, I mean, the very fact that you've done this sort of chronologically through the Bible, it's, I've always sort of been there thinking, oh, no, this has got an ending. It's going to end somehow. <laughs> You know, uh, because he's gonna, he's gonna, you're not like me. You can't go back and pick up, a, you know, pick up all the stories you lost or something. No, I can't. So is this your last season coming up? Are you going to finish up by sort of explaining the early church to us or? No, no. This is definitely the last season. 
is going to be, I think, at most 20 episodes, plus bonuses. And I decided from the beginning I'll finish round about the year 200, when the church has become has become definitely an international franchise. Because I thought there's other podcasts out there which take care of early Christianity, but they usually gloss over the first 200 years because we don't have that much information, or because it's a really it's it's really murky and it, it's confusing and confused. So I thought, okay, I'm going to stop at 200. And that's pretty much the end of my podcasting career. Yeah, you're not, no more projects after that. What are we supposed to do if we don't have Gary Stevens to listen to? (laughs) Well, that's very nice of you to say so, but this Australian accent will disappear. Oh, I've really enjoyed being able to talk to you. Oh, yes, I think this will be excellent. And I think you've been an excellent advertisement for yourself. (laughs) Thank you. So thank you very much for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. It's been great. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. More information about Gary's podcast can be found at historyinthebible.com. I'll be putting off my next regular episode for one week to schedule things around Easter and Holy Week, but join me for the next story, Rehoboam, the wannabe Scorpion King, on Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The music is by Kevin McLeod. It is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I love to be your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.